interestingly, kind of a, a premonition. I don't know what, I don't think Mr. Pyle know what I was going to preach on, but he said we're have a church full of forgiven people here today, and that's certainly true. And uh, we've got to understand that Christ must become far more real to most of us, brethren, so we can have the courage and the understanding to go through the trials that are ahead, and so we can really be in the first resurrection. He's got to be, in fact, our Savior, in fact, our Lord. At Passover, just before Passover here, and this will get to the brethren out there just before Passover, I want to speak on Jesus Christ, our Savior. That's my topic for today. Jesus Christ, our Savior. Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter, if you would, chapter 4 and beginning uh, in verse 12. Peter writes, who was, of course, the leading apostle for quite a number of years, when they list the apostles, as you know, all through the Gospels, it's always Peter, James, and John. Peter, James, and John. His name is always mentioned first, very close to Christ. Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you, but rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings. And brethren, when we go through trials, we need to realize we're often going through Christ's sufferings if the trial is because of our obedience to God. Now, sometimes we bring things on ourselves. Sometimes I bring trouble on myself by eating too much ice cream or eating something bad and getting a sinus headache or being careless and falling or getting hurt or doing other things. You know, that can happen. But when we're persecuted for the truth, we need to realize and understand we're Christ's servants. And it's Christ's sufferings that we're partaking of. But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when His glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. If you reproach for the name of Christ, not because of your foolishness, but for the name of Christ, blessed are you, for the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part He is blasphemed, but on your part He is glorified. But let none of you suffer as a murderer. No, we're not to get into things like that. Or a thief or an evildoer or a busybody in other people's matters. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, if you suffer in the name of Christ, if you suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. Don't ever be ashamed of Jesus the Christ. He is our living head. He is our active high priest at God's right hand. And he is our living Savior who continues to save us and clean us up, and fashion and mold us, working with and under God the Father. Don't be ashamed, but let Him glorify God in this matter. For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. Peter said that back then when they were beginning to get persecution. We haven't had that kind of persecution today, brethren. You know that. Some few are, like our brethren in the Philippines, perhaps, although that's more this general terrorist organization's, but some are beginning to get persecution, but most of us around the world haven't had that. The time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God, and if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? So we've got to be close to God. We've got to know God. We've got to know Jesus Christ in a profound way, more than most of us probably do. And I hope we can really think about that in this pre-Passover time. How real is Jesus Christ to you? How real is He? And of course, is He really your Savior? Have you really repented? Is He really your Lord? 
have you really surrendered and repented of your sins and genuinely given your life to him? We all need to think of those things before the Passover, and we should. Do we truly love and worship the Christ of the Bible? Not some make-believe Christ, as the world comes up with so often, but the Christ of the Bible. In Philippians chapter 1, Paul here writes about the awesome feeling he had, and I often pray to God that I may learn to have that depth of feeling about Christ, because most of us were not there. We didn't see Christ slump forward, and we didn't see him die. Paul didn't either, but Christ directly appeared to him and taught him in visions, and powerful no visions, for about three years. So he knew Christ very personally. He says in Philippians chapter 1, verse 18, he talked about some preaching Christ for wrong reasons. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or truth, Christ is preached. And in this I rejoice, yes, and will rejoice. For I know that this will turn out for my salvation through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Remember, the Holy Spirit proceeds from God the Father through Jesus Christ. Christ is our active head, and He is the one who also helps give us the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit, not a person. It's the power, the character, the essence of God through which he begets us, impregnates us with part of his very character. And, of course, Christ is God also. And we constantly got to understand that. Christ is not just over here somewhere. He's right with God the Father. I and the Father are one. Christ is God. And so that Holy Spirit comes from the Father, originally proceeds through Jesus Christ, and they work with us through the Holy Spirit. So it's the Spirit of Christ. And in this I rejoice and will rejoice. For I know this, well, he talked about this, will turn out from my salvation through the, your prayer and supply of the Spirit of Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness, as always, so now also, notice, Christ will be magnified in my body. What a powerful feeling about Jesus the Christ. I want Christ to be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. If I can honor my Savior by death, let's, let it be. If I can honor Him more by living on, that's fine too. Either way, Paul said. And I know Paul meant it. God didn't let Paul put a bunch of lies in the Bible. And you see Paul's whole life, if the Bible is inspired at all, you see Paul meant that. He lived that. He thought that. He ate and breathed that. For to me, to live is Christ. What did he mean by that? When you and I live, let it be Christ living in us. Remember my favorite verse, Paul's verse, Galatians 2, verse 20. I'm crucified with Christ. God willing, all of us who have been baptized, some have not been, but if we've been baptized, we should have. All have not done that around the world or perhaps right here as well. Let's examine ourselves. We should have crucified the old self. The old self should have been buried. That doesn't mean we're perfect the next day. But in the attitude, in the total commitment, meaning it, we should have buried the old self under the water. I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Paul was still physically alive. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. That's the key. That's what a true Christian is. Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live with the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. 
Paul went on to say in that verse. So he said to me, to live is Christ. You see what I mean? Christ lives in me, Paul said. It was Christ's life that Paul would be living. Christ would be living in him. It wouldn't be Paul's life, Christ's life. But to die is gain. Paul had been beaten and kicked and stomped and cursed many times. And they're not all recorded. He refers to some of it in a general way, where he was beaten five times by the Jews, 39 lashes, and innumerable times by the Gentiles, where they would go above 39 lashes. His back would be bloody. He would be sore. He would be racked with pain, unable to sit down and lean against the back of the chair, probably for weeks at a time after one of those horrible beatings. Other times he was beaten with fists and known out other things as well. And he tells about the time he spent a night and the day in the deep, floating around, grasping to some plank, I guess, that had fallen off the ship or something and hoping that God would protect him and save his life. And as I've said before, maybe Paul was out there floating around through that night and looking up the stars and said, God, you're up there and I'm down here. <laughs> and I, if it's best, let me keep on going. And the next morning or late the next afternoon, why, somehow he was rescued. He floated a night and a day out in the ocean because he was in Christ's service and had to go through these unusual travels and times. But if I live on the flesh, live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit from my labor. Yet what I shall choose, I cannot tell, for I am hard pressed. As he wrote the book, Paul was sort of thinking out loud here as he wrote this letter. Having a desire, he says, even as I write, I have a desire to depart and be with Christ. I don't need any more of these beatings, he was thinking. I don't need any more rocks smashing into my head and lying there in a pool of blood outside Lystra. That's not fun stuff. He said, I just as soon go to sleep and wake up in the resurrection, as Paul wrote, at about 60, 62 years old by this time, perhaps. So he said, I would just be to, with desire to be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. I can see you Philippians need me. The brethren need me. And I've had the training and all the experience. And maybe it's better I stay around for that reason. And being confident of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy of faith. So Paul loved Christ. He had given himself to Christ. He said, for to me to live is Christ. It's Christ living. That's the only reason I need to live. And to die is gain. Do you have that kind of relationship with Christ? I doubt it. I don't have that relationship as closely as I should. I don't think any of us do. Today, the profound relationship with Christ that Peter had, that John had, who sort of laid in his bosom that evening, you know, the Passover, and knew Christ so well and the Apostle Paul. But we can strive for that, brethren, and we really should. In earnest Bible study, just feeding on this book, reading about Christ, drinking in of it over and over, thinking about Christ, picturing Christ, picturing what He did, how He helped people, served people, loved people, eventually died for people, and thinking about that, and praying to God in the name of Christ, and picturing Christ at the right hand of God. That's not wrong. You don't need to put a face on it, some particular features, but I'm sure that we can know that there are two great blinding lights up there and Christ is at the right hand of God the Father. So many scriptures tell us Christ needs to be more real to all of us. 
Turn back to Ephesians chapter 1, if you would. Ephesians chapter 1, and I'll begin to read here. I'm going to get a little bit of this tea. In Ephesians 1, verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. I'm Christ's representative. That's why Paul came by the will of God. To the saints, those of you who are baptized, truly baptized and have God's Spirit, you're saints. I'm speaking to St. Richard and St. Catherine over here and St. Ruth over here and various ones. Just pick on the ones in the front row so none of the rest of you. St. Uh, Charles and St. Sharon and <laughs> others on the front row. So anyway, we're, 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 we're saints if we're converted and have God's Holy Spirit, as most of, of you have had that opportunity and that great blessing. To the saints, saint doesn't mean perfect. It doesn't mean someone walking around in a black robe, you know, out in a convent or a monastery. It means someone who is saintly, who has God's Spirit. It means holy. You've been set apart by God through His Spirit and faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He sent them blessings. You'll notice in every single introduction to Paul's letter, he mentions something like that. And in every single case here and in Peter's writings and James' writings and Paul's writings, the Holy Spirit is never, never, ever mentioned. Why? What a colossal insult to the Holy Spirit. If, the big if, if the Holy Spirit is a person. But the Holy Spirit is not the third person in the Godhead. Otherwise, that would be mentioned. But it's not. That's not the total proof against the Trinity, but that's a big one right there. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in Christ, just as He chose us in Him way back, perhaps millions of years ago, when Christ began to work with the Father, and they were conferring the Father and the Logos, the spokesman, were planning out a plan. And as they projected that plan, they were going to create human beings in their image. And so they planned this out that they would choose certain ones in different ages to represent them. They didn't choose you. They didn't choose me by, you know, saying Rod Meredith, 5'10", 150 pounds, or 5'10 and a half, whatever. As they used to be. I'm not anymore, <laughs> whatever. <laughs> and, and so on and so forth. But they knew ahead of time they would choose certain types of people in different ages to do their will as they saw it would work out the best. He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love having predestined us to the sonship in, by Jesus Christ. The Greek word means make a son. The living or the revised standard Bible says to be His sons. And that's the way it ought to be translated, not adoption. We're not adopted by God. God impregnates us with His Spirit. Many times when the Bible uses the term adoption, the New International Version or the Revised Version or one of the others will, will say something like this, to be His sons or sonship, because they know it can be translated. In fact, it's better translated that way. So He's made us sons by Jesus Christ to Himself according to the good pleasure of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace by which He's made us acceptable in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption. Brethren, we've all sinned. And I am speaking to a bunch of sinners who've been forgiven, if you have repented, in fact. We've all had to be forgiven. We are the church of the forgiven. 
And I gave a sermon on that, I think, in Global years ago, and that was the title. We are the church of the forgiven. And we have to understand that. We're not better than others. As I read about some of these people out in the Protestant world and, and the things they do and sometimes die, very sincere people. Some of them have more capacity than we do. Most of them do, probably. More intelligence, higher IQ, more cultural training, higher education, many of their leaders. God did not choose us because of that. He chose the weak of the world who would be willing to realize how weak we are and give God the credit. But sometimes we forget how weak we are. and say, Well, we must be better than other people because we're in the church. As Uncle Paul used to say, kind of a silly thing, but he said, root to toot to toot. We're the girls from the institute, you know. We're at God's church. We were better than others. We're in such and such a, a college or such and such a place. No, we're not. We're not better than others. God has had mercy on us. That's why we're here. We have redemption. It mean, redeem means to buy back. It's like you've hocked your, uh, your watch and you have to go to the pawn shop and pay for it to get it back again. We were under Satan's influence, paid for by Satan in a sense, or grabbed away, kidnapped by Satan. And God comes and buys us back. How? How? Through the blood, or through His blood, the blood of Jesus Christ. Say, you're sounding Protestant. Well, don't worry about it. The Protestants do not have a monopoly on the blood of Jesus Christ. They're talking about it. Let's understand that. We've got to talk about that even more. We've got to think about that even more. We've got to pray about that and fast about that even more. That doesn't mean we're doing away with God's commandments. It means we need a more profound feeling about the fact that we're forgiven. And as I've explained before, Mr. Herbert Armstrong twice, once right in the big group and once in a smaller group, once before the whole church, he said, and some of you older ones may remember that. I don't know how long ago or when it was, but it was many years ago, decades ago. He said, brethren, two different occasions. He said, we've got to get our mind more on the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and his shed blood and focus on that more. He said, I know that I have led you. And he said, because I had to come to the truth one doctrine at a time and all these preachers are out there talking about sweet Jesus and give your heart to Jesus and all this stuff. And they talked about the wrong Christ and just talked about forgiveness and you're forgiven without any sense of obedience. He said, I sometimes went to the opposite extreme and we just talked about God's law and obeying God and God's government and all this. And we didn't talk enough about Christ. He says, I'm going to try to repent of that. And for a while he did. And then we drift back the other way as we have done, as I have done. We need to preach more about the blood of Jesus Christ in the right way, not the way they do. You see, one the big thing they don't understand and don't practice, not because we're better, but because God has blinded them. He's allowed them to be blinded. You know, people saw about this word or that word, meaning a, a, the F word or some other word as they use these expressions. They fear, or at least they don't understand, the R word, repentance repentance over and over if you read Billy Graham's column you read these other things this Rick Warren and his articles I've read and stuff very seldom does the word repentance ever enter, enter in just receive Christ into your life invite Christ do this and that give your heart to Christ no word about repentance and yet when John the Baptist came he said repent the first thing out of his mouth 
You read back in John 4, or Matthew 4, 23, and later in Mark 2, verses 14 and 15. Repent and believe the gospel, Jesus Christ said. Peter came along on the day of Pentecost, Acts 2, verse 38. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission, the forgiveness of your sins. That's the first thing he said, repent. And they don't understand that. They think you just have to get sentimental about the person of Christ, their Protestant concept of Christ, because they're blinded. They do not understand. And then join the church. Join the church of your choice. If you come to Billy Graham's campaign and give your heart to the Lord, then the counselors, as you probably read this, and I know one of our ministers used to be one of his counselors and explained that's the way it works. They have their instructions in their pre-campaign meeting they're to send people back to the church of their choice. And if you're a Lutheran, you go back or they'll send you back to the Catholic church or back to the Greek or you just go back to the church of your choice, whatever it is, you see. So therefore, they can be more ecumenical and have bigger crowds. That way they can bust thousands of people in from all over Los Angeles and Billy Graham has a big crowd because the people will be bust in from you know, San Bernardino and down from Bakersfield and down even as far as Fresno and up from San Diego and all over. And they fill the stadium. And most of them are already churchgoers anyhow. And some of them are making their decision for Christ for the third or fourth time, which they admit. And some of the authors and some of his people admit that. They're just making decision after decision and so on. They're not, they do not understand. God has not called them. That doesn't make us better. We do need to understand, repent, a profound recognition of how wrong we have been and how awful sin really is. And that we hate that. We hate that part of ourselves. We hate sin. We want to bury it. We want to crucify it. We want to get rid of it. We know it's an awful thing. It destroys us. It causes broken marriages. It causes sickness and disease. Death, suffering, agonizing of all sorts when people sin. And eventually death in the lake of fire. They've got to realize how awful sin is. It's not some little thing to be made fun of. It's a huge thing in the sight of the God that gives us life and breath. And we want to get rid of it, throw it down, get it as far away from us as we possibly can. Repent. The R word. The word the Protestants and the Catholics do not understand. But we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. You have had sin after sin after sin after sin. And if you don't think you have, then God has not even opened your mind and you've probably never been converted at all. I have had sin after sin after sin after sin as I grew up and sassed my parents, took God's name in vain, cheated, lied at times, lusted, fought, had wrong attitudes, all kinds of things like that, over and over. And sometimes those attitudes come back again, and you have to repent of them. Or to repent not just of the deed, but of the attitude of murder, the attitude of adultery, the attitude of hate and violence and lust and all vanity and all this stuff. It's still there. And if you examine yourselves, you'll see that it's still there. And so we have to keep repenting, keep growing in grace and in knowledge. We have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of His grace. 
So we have to understand that. We are the church of the forgiven, my brethren, and we want to profoundly understand that major truth. That's a very, very important thing. Notice chapter 2 now of Ephesians. He says, In you, you, you Ephesians, he made alive who were dead. And that applies to us too. We were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked according to the course of this world, this world society. What did I do in this world society? Well, all kinds of things. In the noon hour, well, we'd go out and sit in Carter McKee's station wagon and the guys would smoke and tell dirty jokes and do this and that, use God's name in vain, and so on. The course of this world. And we'd go out and sometimes drink too much or cuss or lust or fight or whatever in the various, you know, Ducky station wagon or Carter station wagon or Monty Taylor's car, whoever we went with on a particular night. We had to drive all the way to Web City one time to try to see a dirty movie. We wanted to see one so bad we couldn't stand it. And we got over there in Web City. They didn't even have one bad enough in Joplin, so we drove all the way over. There weren't anything like this today. And when we got there, the movie was entitled Mom and Dad. And as we sat in it, we were really disgusted and left because the whole thing was about venereal disease and warning us about venereal disease. But, oh, no, we didn't come to see this. <laughs> Crazy teenage kids filled with vanity and lust. And I've had repent of those things. Was I worse than the others? Some of you old ladies made to think I was worse. No, I was average. I was no worse, I don't think, than the average. Probably no better either as far as that's concerned. But a lot of those things follow us right over into our adult life. So we were going according to the course of this world. The prince, according to the prince of the power of the air. Satan the devil who guides the television, guides the kind of music that our young people listen to, guides this uh, rap stuff they talk about, where they're rap, blah, 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 you know, and very vulgar street talk inciting often violence and murder and an attitude of rebellion. He is in charge of that. The spirit who now works, he's busy working in the children of disobedience, among whom you also once conducted ourselves, we, in the lusts of our flesh, we've all done that in one way or the other, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, wanting to lust after things, hating others, wanting to cheat, wanting to get ahead by hook or crook, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. Yes, we were. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, we were under the death penalty, made us alive together with Christ. That's the only way we can be made alive. By grace you've been saved, and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus, in God's plan. We're going to be with Christ in these heavenly offices, that in ages to come, not right away, but in ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. The exceeding riches. When we hear that last trump, and we sort of feel or recognize we're rising Rising up to meet Christ in the air. What an exhilarating feeling. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Grace itself is a gift, of course. Grace means gift. Grace means blessing and so on. Grace means mercy. By grace you've been saved. You've been forgiven your past sins through faith. 
You've got to have faith in Christ, faith in God, and that not of yourselves. The faith is not of yourselves. The grace, of course, is a gift anyway. It is the gift of God, this faith. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. Brethren, I try to keep God's Ten Commandments now for the last 55 years and more since I've been baptized and overall have walked in that way of life, not perfectly at all. But on the other hand, I'm not saved by that because I've never for one day kept the Ten Commandments perfectly in the letter and the spirit. Some of you may think that's a terrible admission, but I'm sure every day I have some thought of vanity, jealousy, lust, and greed that goes through my mind. Part, you know, a few thoughts like that every day. Maybe many if God adds up the score because I'm human and you're human. So let's not get self-righteous, any of us. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. No, we don't earn anything in that way. It's what we ought to do. For we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. We're supposed to have good works, of course, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Yes, we are to walk in them. And that's very important. Therefore, remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, called uncircumcision by the circumcision, that at that time you were without Christ. You say, oh, well, these, you know, like a lot of the ministers today say, well, God has different ways of saving people and these sincere people worshiping these idols over in India or China or wherever they are, God will bring them along. No, He won't. They're cut off, totally cut off until, as that lady expressed in her letter, until the great white throne judgment. You know, and when you understand that, well, of course God has an opportunity for them at a different time. It's through the same way, though, through Jesus Christ and His shed blood. And so uh, they were without Christ, aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been made near by the blood of Christ. Brethren, you have been made near by the blood of Christ. Because all of us have been spiritually Gentiles. Some of us might be descendants of the ten tribes of Israel. But that doesn't cut any ice with God spiritually at all. We've all had to repent of our wrong ways. But we are reconciled through the blood of Jesus Christ. His shed blood. As we approach the Passover and taking the symbols of the broken bread and the red wine, which symbolizes that blood pouring out of Christ's body as he died, we need to think about that. It took that. It took that blood, that life. As it says in Leviticus 17, 11, the life is in the blood. And it took that shed blood to pay for my sins and to pay for your sins. And we want to have a profound appreciation for that shed blood. And say, no, we're the church. We get over here and we kind of climb the ladder. and We work our way up into heaven. No, we're not going to heaven anyway. <laughs> we work our way up into heaven by being strict in the Sabbath and strict in this and that. No, we don't. We are able to be reconciled to God and have the help we need through the Holy Spirit. And God is not so concerned about all the little stuff. You know, we sometimes worry about young people wearing their hair too long or girls wearing their dress too short. That's not ideal. I'm not saying that. But we don't want to major in the minors. We need to have our mind on the big picture 
who really is trying to serve God and as they serve God and as they walk with God, yes, they'll gradually get their hair shorter if they're men and their skirts lower if they're women and they'll learn these comparatively little things. He looks on the heart. Have they really repented? Have they really wanted to obey their maker? Have they been shaken to the depths of their being wanting to serve God and keep his big spiritual commandments which don't have to do with those things at all? They tell us how to love God with all our heart and strength and mind and soul and love our neighbor as ourselves. And that's what Jesus taught. And he had ten commandments. And we're to live by those commandments. And as we learn to apply them to every phase and facet of our lives, then we will be getting rid of some other stuff that may not be ideal, but is not the major thing that God is looking to at all. And we've got to understand that. We've got to be big-minded as people come into this church from different backgrounds As I've said before, we don't want to be judging them about all that little stuff. That's childish stuff. We've got to think big. These people have come from a different background. And these kids who come in here have had different ways of life and music and the way they wear their hair or earrings or high heels or high dresses and low-cut dresses or too tight clothes or whatever. That's not the major thing. They're not committing adultery. If they are, we'll get them. (laughs) Go correct them. They're not murdering. They're just kind of silly kids or other older people doing some funny things. Those are very minor things. If the heart is right, if the heart is right, they'll learn as they go along over time. But we're not here to catch them or cram our ideas down their throat on those little things. So we've got to have a profound appreciation for the forgiveness that we've had to experience and go through, through the blood of Jesus Christ Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 13 at this point, brethren. 2 Corinthians, a very uh, fundamental scripture you're all familiar with, I'm sure, you older brethren. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5. Paul says, examine yourselves as to whether you're in the faith. He doesn't say the minister is to examine you. You may want to counsel with the minister about your conversion or the depth of your conversion, or spiritual problems. That's fine. Examine yourselves, whether you're in the faith. Prove yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you are disqualified, as it is in the New King James? Examine yourselves. Christ is in you. It all has to do with Christ. Christ is the center of our religion. And we've got to understand that. Very, very important. Is God the Father involved? Yes, He is too. But Christ and God, they are one. Christ is not over here to one side. So it's Christ and God the Father. And we go to God the Father through Jesus Christ and we want to have a profound feeling about that. So each of us needs to examine himself or herself about our recent and current sins and vanities and lusts and self-will. I want what I want when I want it. And I don't want anyone telling me anything. This is the wrong attitude. The wrong attitude. We are to submit, of course, to God's Word. And if the Word of God can show us something, we should be willing to learn it, wanting to learn it with all of our hearts and take correction when correction comes through God's true ministers and through the Word of God. And we need to constantly examine ourselves because... You know, it's not a question if you know you've been converted, although it's good to question that. You know that I have baptized two or three men 
rebaptized, I should say, two or three men after they were ordained already to the rank of pastor. We used to have elder and then preaching elder and then pastor. And I rebaptized at least two, and I think it was the third one, who were already pastor rank ministers in the Worldwide Church of God. They came to understand that even though God's Spirit had been with them, they still had profound problems and it may not have been in them. So don't be ashamed to consider if you've ever really been conquered by God. That doesn't mean if you're perfect, but it's not a disgrace to consider that because as Mr. Armstrong used to look out over the congregation, as I've said so many times, he'd often say, I don't think even half of you people are converted. I think more than half are converted in the living church of God because he sorted us and sorted us and sorted us. But it could be that a fourth of us or so may not be fully converted and conquered by God. I don't know. God knows. But each of you examine yourselves. Don't be afraid of that. But on the other hand, if you know you've been converted and assume that at least at the time, unless God shows you otherwise, then you're not supposed to go back and rehearse all of the former sins and have that trouble you. I don't toss a turn and say, well, Rod, you did this back when you were 15 or 17 years old. You know what I mean? I don't want to lose any sleep over that because that's been under the blood of Jesus Christ for years. So you're not supposed to do that. You're forgetting those things which are behind, looking forward. But on the other hand, in recent days and weeks and current attitudes, current problems that keep popping up, yes, you do examine yourselves regularly all through the year about those things. And especially in the weeks before Passover. So all of us here have several weeks before Passover, about two months And the brethren, you brethren in the field who hear this later, you may just have four or five weeks or some of you just two or three weeks, depending on when the tape gets down to you, to examine yourselves before Passover. So he says, examine yourselves, whether or not Christ is in you. That's very, very important. And you've got to do that. And you've got to examine, did you really repent? And again, I would like to read perhaps the best example where it's spelled out of repentance in the Bible because Christ didn't, of course, set that example. He didn't have to repent. But the man who was a type of Christ, very profoundly, King David did. Turn to Psalm 51. Here's one reason, not the only reason, one reason why David was a man after God's own heart because of this attitude which you and I need to exemplify in our lives. Psalm 51 Here's his repentance after his sin with Bathsheba. And I notice it puts it in here. But of course, God often says, Uriah. The matter of Uriah the Hittite. You notice even the Protestant commentators concentrate on the sexy part, the juicy part, as we would look at it. The worst thing was murder. Murdering Uriah, Bathsheba's husband. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness. According to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. David wrote, for I acknowledge my transgression. You see a lot of people, well, I wasn't bad. And they want to constantly defend the self. A lot of us want to protect the self. We somehow don't want to expose the self. That bothers us. We put up barriers. Well, we got to protect the self 
because some might find out that we're really human after all. <laughs> no, you don't need to worry one-tenth as much about what people think as you better be worried about what God thinks. Think about that. It's what God thinks that's going to get you, not what human beings think. For I acknowledge my transgressions, do you? And my sin is ever with me. And David thought over and over, what a rat I have been. I lusted after this woman. I committed adultery, maybe an affair that lasted for weeks. Apparently, it wasn't just one act at all. And then later, I murdered her husband. And then pretended as though it wasn't that way. Never confessed it. David didn't directly lie, but his, his way of life was a lie. And the minute Nathan was sent to him with this parable, then he, then he repented right away. He got it. At least he didn't lie to Nathan. He said, it's me. I'm sorry. I'm wrong. My sin is ever before me, right up in front of my face. I can see Uriah's face, this faithful man who was willing to come back from the battle and, and be with me and not even go down to be with his wife because his men were in the field of battle. And he hated to go and lie with his wife while these men were out there suffering. He said, I won't even do that. So he just lay in a sort of by the, by the curb or by the entrance to the king's palace. Tremendous honor that Uriah had. That must have hit David. Must have really hit him how honorable Uriah was and what a rat he was and having Joab send him to the forefront of battle on purpose so he'd get killed and then withdraw from him quickly. My sin is ever before me. It's right there in front of my face. What a rat I have been against you. You didn't sin against Uriah. He'd say, well, Uriah is just a, a, a sergeant or a, a lieutenant. He was one of David's leading men, but not the two or three leading, but he was probably lieutenant or captain in effect in the army. He could say, well, I'm, I'm the, you know, I'm the commander in chief. Uriah, he's just a second lieutenant. Who's he? No, that wasn't the point. When you sin and you hurt somebody or you lust after someone or whatever you do, you're not sinning just against that person that may be involved. You are sinning against the God who gives you the next breath of air you breathe. And so am I. Against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil. He didn't say, oh, well, it's just some minor thing. All the other kings, now God, they, they have their mistresses and they just grab whatever woman they want to, which they did. David never brought that up. He knew that he was different. He was called out away from this world. He was in touch with the Lord God of the armies of Israel. And he relied upon that God again and again to give him victory and deliver him and help him. And he knew he'd let God down. He turned his back on God for a while. Against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil, that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. Whatever you do to me is fair, God. I know that, he's saying. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. He didn't mean the act of conception was a sin. His father and mother were married. But he came forth with sinful nature from the very beginning. Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts. And in the hidden part, you will make me to know wisdom. He said, notice, which I often preach to you in a different way. I say, clean us up and scrub us out. I ask God to do me that way nearly every day. He said, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness that the bones which you've broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all mine iniquities. 
create in me a clean heart. God, I've been rotten. Please create a clean heart. Renew a steadfast spirit in me. Don't cast me away from your presence. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Have mercy, God. I'm wrong, wrong, wrong. I have no excuse, David said over and over. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Behold, uphold me with your generous spirit. Then I will teach transgressors. You'll forgive me. I'll teach others and help. Deliver me from blood guiltiness. Again, he didn't try to water it down. He didn't say, well, you know, what's his name over here? Joab did it. He knew that it wasn't Joab who did it. Joab did it on his orders. He was responsible. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, the God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness. O Eternal, open my eyes, and my mouth shall show forth your praise. For you do not desire sacrifice, or I'd give it. You don't delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. Where you really come and say, God, I'm worth nothing. I've sinned and sinned and sinned and done wrong, and I need to give my life to you. Have mercy through the blood of Jesus Christ, and that's the only help I can have. I know that. I don't deserve anything except for Christ and his sacrifice. Of course, David didn't say that because that time hadn't come, but in effect he was saying that here the best he could under the old covenant. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. This is the attitude God wants us to have. And we need to examine ourselves. We need to go back and relive perhaps our conversion. Go back and examine ourselves. What have we been doing the last several months? What sins have we been committing since the last Passover? What vanity and jealousy and lust and greed is still coming up, welling up inside of us? What self-will and rebellion is still coming up within us in our lives from time to time. What lying and watering things down and twisting so we get out of the full extent of our guilt. Hiding our eyes from the real self that we really are, thinking others don't know. No, God always knows. Our thoughts are before Him always. And as He says, your sins shall find you out. So don't hide from God. He will always bring it out. I'll always remember the young couple. I could give you the fellow's name and the girl's name way back in Ambassador College. This young man worked on the maintenance crew or gardening crew, whatever it was. And she was a young woman just going into her freshman year, very pretty. And we told the working men they were not to date these kids until they had at least two years of college because their parents would send out Joanne or whatever their name is, their young daughter. And here these working men would have cars and money because they were getting a salary, you know, and the students, like Mr. Bryce or others, Mr. Ames, they, they didn't have that money. They were out work, you know, didn't get very much salary, and they couldn't keep up with these working men and showing these girls a good time and grab the girl off, try to marry her before they ever got a chance to get much college. That was a rule. He knew it. She knew it. But they were dating quite a bit, and I heard about it. It was men's guidance counselor at the time. I think I called the men and talked to them and reamed them out and said, you know, I was more strict back then. I probably talked to them very straight, said, you're not to do this, and so on. Okay, we really understand. We're really going to know we won't do this. And I went very, very, you know, I went right down the line, talked to them a long time. This, as I remember, it was on a Friday, right before the weekend. The very Sunday, two days or three days later, my wife and children and I, older children, were up at the end of 
I think, Crystal Canyon or Fish Canyon out east of Pasadena. We were going up to this falls. A falls came down over the hill, and we were throwing rocks. And all of a sudden, I looked behind, and I could see him coming into the entrance of the canyon, holding hands. I said, look, let's, let me get under this tree. And I got under the tree and uh, all and just kind of sat there a minute, told the kid, be quiet, be quiet. And so when they came around the edge of the tree and stuff, a little bushes or something near that, I said, and greetings. <laughs> and they literally about jumped out of their skin. I'd never seen anything so funny in my life. Wow, they were scared. God brought the evangelist right in front of them that they had promised that they would not do this to, you know. Wow. Now, maybe that was an accident. I don't think so. It happened so quickly. <laughs> and they repented for a while. <laughs> and then they, she got her two years of college in, although they did later get married <laughs> and so on. And they never got mad at me because later on he asked me, or she did, I forget which one, to baptize them. So I, I may have performed their wedding. I can't remember. I performed so many of those things through the years. So I, I, I was strict, but I don't think I was unusually mean. Just normal mean <laughs> back there. I was strict trying to get them straightened out. Anyway, God knows what's going on. and He can catch you. Don't think you can hide from God if he's dealing with you. Now, maybe he's not dealing with you, and he lets most of the world go its own way. We know that for 6,000 years. He's not trying to catch all the Chinese and all the people in India and everyone else. He lets them go their own way. But we, brethren, are being called of God. We're being dealt with by God. And God knows whether we're playing games. Please don't play games with God. Please don't play games with your conversion. Don't play games with your baptism. It's silly. Who are you fooling? Who are you hurting? Only yourself. So read this scripture every now and then and examine yourself and see if you have gone through that. And if you still go through that sincerely from time to time and genuinely surrendering your heart, mind and will to God, examine yourselves. Second Corinthians, no, I'm sorry, first Corinthians chapter six. Now, if you would turn there is the next scripture I'd like to cover. First Corinthians uh, chapter six and uh Notice here what the Apostle Paul was inspired to write, beginning verse 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? They're not going to be there. How can you become righteous? The R word. You've got to genuinely repent. And secondly, you've got to accept Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, your Lord and Master. Lord means boss, that he will live his life in you. You're living high priest and head and coming king. We usually mention all these things at baptism and in the baptismal counseling. The unrighteous will not be there. Do not be deceived, neither fornicators. Some young people think, well, I didn't commit adultery. We're not married, you know. No, God says fornicators. Sex between two unmarried people is sin before God. They will not be there. Will they be protected from the coming great tribulation if they're fornicating? No, of course they won't. Cannot be, will not be. If they're old enough to commit fornication, they're old enough to stand on their own before God. So you have to think about it. Be realistic. 
neither fornicators nor idolaters, which is tying in with fornication because they often had the temple priestesses there, prostitutes, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals. No, God doesn't have mercy on the homosexuals. He has mercy on them when they repent, but he does not forgive them as they are. No, God doesn't have some come-as-you-are policy. Some of these churches say, come as you are. No, don't come as you are. Repent and then come to God. Nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetousness, where you're lusting and lusting after things that you shouldn't have and can't afford to buy. Mine's always on that. Nor drunkards, people that drink too much regularly are drunkards. Nor revilers, putting down God's ministers, putting down the president, putting down our leaders, reviling those in authority, which is from Satan the devil, nor extortioners, hurting people, taking advantage of the poor people and things like that. None of them will inherit the kingdom of God. They won't be there. But such were some of you. Now, But now you're washed. But you were sanctified. You see, you're cleaned up. You're forgiven. You are justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. You're made clean by Christ. He says a little bit later in verse 18, flee immorality or flee fornication, as it is in the King James, pornea. Flee that. Don't mess around. Don't say, well, I won't fornicate, but I'll have my girlfriend over to the apartment and we'll stay around all night and all this. No, you don't do that. You get away from that way of life. Every sin that a man sins outside uh, does is outside the body. But he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. I don't want to go into every phase of that, but you have a special giving of yourselves in the sex relationship. Your heart, your mind, your emotions, and so on. And you sin against yourself in a very special, profound way when you get involved in that. You may steal something out here, hit someone out here, but if you do that, then you're involved in a very deep, profound sin against God and against your own body. It'll hurt you later in your marriage. You can never feel as clean as you would if you're not messed around. You can never love your mate to the same degree as you would have if you had not messed around first. You may not have the same degree of profound loyalty as if you had been messing around with fornication. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? You see, God's Spirit is to dwell in you, to live in you if you're a Christian. Who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own. You are not your own. Who owns are you? You are Christ's. He bought and paid for you. And when you approach the Passover, you want to think about what Christ did. His shed blood paid for your sins. He redeemed you. He brought you back from the death penalty. Therefore, He's your Lord, your Master. He owns you. Your body is not your body. You don't have the right. I don't take, have the right to take my body and go commit adultery. I don't have the right to take my body and go do steal or do this or that. doesn't belong to me. Your body doesn't belong to you. For you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, in your attitude, the thoughts that go through your mind. You are bought and paid for by Jesus Christ of Nazareth, our living head, our living Savior. Remember back in John chapter 5, 
John chapter 5, something I've mentioned, but we need to review this because it's so easy to forget. So many people have a concept that God's over here and Christ's over here and so on. But it says here, in God's Word, and God the Father inspired this as well as Christ, is His Word, John 5, 21. For as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the Son gives life to whom He will. Christ is the one who will resurrect you. The active instrument in the family of God. He's the one who'll do it. Get right with God and with Christ. For the Father judges no one, get it, but has committed all judgment to the Son. Who will judge you? Not God the Father, Christ. He is the one who will judge you acting for the Godhead, you see. As other scriptures tell us, he is better able to do that because he's been in the human flesh. He's been tempted in all points like as we are. He's able to really grasp what we've been through and God has assigned him to be our judge. For, verse 22, as the Father judges no one but has committed all judgment to the Son that all should honor the Son, get it, just as they honor the Father. Should you honor the Son just as the Father? You say, oh, well, I wouldn't be careful. Better not give Christ too much glory. No, you're never going to make God jealous. Get it. You're never, ever going to make God the Father jealous by giving too much honor to the Son. You're not. He tells you over and over to honor the Son. And just as you honor the Father, you don't want to leave the Father out. But if you have a more profound feeling at times about Christ in certain situations, remember Stephen when he was martyred just before he died. The rocks were already starting to hit his head. He said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then he went to sleep. Lord Jesus, a profound feeling about the Christ came out of his mouth in that terrible moment. He'd had this relationship with Christ. Was God angry? No. Christ was his immediate God. Christ was his immediate Savior. Christ was his immediate head. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Read it at the end of Acts chapter 7. So that all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Let's really understand that. God honors what Christ did. We should honor what Christ did and what Christ is. What Christ is. Notice back in Matthew 6, we hear, hear, read here the Lord's Prayer as we call it. In this manner, therefore, pray, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. We're to ask for our needs, not to be a millionaire, but for our needs. And forgive us our debts as, or trespasses, it may be translated, as we forgive others. And don't bring us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one, the Satan, For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. For Jesus said, if you, for if you forgive men their trespasses, you see, people who hurt you, your father will forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your father forgive your trespasses. So as you approach the Passover, each of you has got to learn to profoundly from the depths of your being forgive others. Don't carry grudges. 
Don't carry grudges. Forgive others. If you don't, if you want God to forgive you wholly, you've got to forgive others. So that's a powerful thing. That's repeated a number of times, of course, in the Bible. Again, we are the church of the forgiven. And we've got to forgive others. And we've got to recognize that we're sinners. We need forgiveness. We need the blood of Jesus Christ. Notice now Matthew 26, if you turn there now, the Gospel of Matthew. And I'm going to turn at this point to Matthew 26. And beginning in verse 26, 226 is here, as it turns out. I may not have time to read every word, but here in Matthew 26, it talks about the Passover. Verse 26, as they were eating, Jesus was taking the old lamb and bitter herbs. As they were eating that meal, the Jewish Passover, then Jesus introduces the new Passover, the new symbols. Jesus took bread, blessed it, broke it, and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Here he was, a young 33-year-old man. They weren't under some spooky idea that this Jesus jumped over into this bread. They knew it was a symbol, obviously. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. So they all drank of this, everything indicates, red wine, which symbolized his red blood. For this is my blood of the new covenant. A new covenant was being introduced here, which is shed for many for the remission or the forgiveness, the forgiveness of sins, which they did not have under the old covenant. But I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine till I do it new in the Father's kingdom. They sang a hymn and went out. And then uh, Jesus said, all of you, verse 31, will be made to stumble because of me. And then Peter blats out, even if all are made to stumble, verse 33, I will not be made to stumble. And Jesus said, as surely I say to you that this night before the rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. Peter said, even if I die with you, I will not deny you. And so said all the disciples. All blatted this out. They thought they were going to be faithful to Christ. But when the chips were down, they all fled If you remember the story, they were scared. What's the difference between them and us? The Holy Spirit was not yet given for about 40 more days until the day of Pentecost. God's Spirit was with them, as it explains in John 14, but not yet in them. So they were not held accountable to the same degree as you and I would be if we turn away from Christ in trials and tests that are going to come and they are going to come. Turn to chapter 27 then, chapter 27 here of Matthew, and notice in verse 22. Here he was being tried and just about ready to be crucified because they were all shouting to kill him. And so Pilate said, what shall I do with Jesus? And they all said, crucify him. Then the governor said, why, what evil has he done? But they cried all the more, let him be crucified. And when Pilate saw that he could not prevail, but rather a tumult was rising. Of course, he could have crushed them with the army, but then he would have been troubled back in Rome and the you know, the, they didn't want to have all these riots going on and distracting their armies from somewhere else. So Pilate tried to make peace. He went along, compromise, compromise. So he washed his hands as though that made him okay. He said, I'm innocent of the blood of this innocent person. You see to it. And all the people said, his blood be on us and on our children. Powerful statement that's haunting 
some of those people 2,000 years later. Then he released Barabbas to them, and when he scourged Jesus, this horrible beating, the official scourging by the Roman lictor would often tear the hide right off of a human being. A slow, steady beating that was so horrible with metal cleats embedded into the leather straps that sometimes it would tear the flesh and sometimes bring death from the shock and the loss of blood before the crucifixion could ever take place. The man would die from that beating. So Jesus went through that and then they stripped him and put on this robe and made fun of him, spat in his face, took him out to be crucified. And then, of course, they crucified him, as it says in verse 35. That horrible thing, here he was, jerked down on a big plank, and the great spikes went into his hands and into his feet as he was writhing there and then raising it up and clunk and tearing the flesh and the horrible pain surging through his body. And he had to hang there for six hours. He who had been God. Some men had to hang there two or three or four days and slowly die. God did have mercy on Jesus to that extent. He didn't let him die because of what happened. But he suffered horribly there for six hours, which probably seemed like six years. So from about the sixth hour, verse 43, until the ninth hour, there was darkness. A supernatural darkness came over the land. The earth was convulsing because the Creator was dying. God created all things through Jesus Christ, Ephesians 3, verse 9. And about the ninth hour, three o'clock in the afternoon, after three hours of darkness at the time, it should have been the brightest, Jesus cries out, Lama, no, Eli, Eli, Lama Sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This was predicted ahead of time, I know that, but Jesus felt that way. For the first time he could sense he was cut off from God. No special help during those hours. Cut off because of what you've done. You, every one of you, every one of you in Perth and Cape Town and everywhere else, what I've done, all of us have done. He was cut off. He was put under the death penalty in our stead. He had to die for us. He who had given us life in the first place. We don't often think through the whole thing. We should. Read it. Go back and read it before Passover again. Read all the accounts about it. Think about it. Examine yourselves. Be sure it has great meaning to you. Do a little extra Bible study on this. Why have you forsaken me? And some said he's calling for Elijah. They gave him a sponge and so on. And then the rest said, let him alone. Then Jesus, when he cried out again with a loud voice, yielded up his breath. Why did Jesus cry out again? Well, because as many of the translations have it, and they word it this way, and you read, if you wish to, Clark's commentary, Adam Clark's Bible commentary, and a number of others, but that's perhaps one of the best on this. It says here, in the Greek, in the original Greek, right at that point, right after verse 49, another took a spear and, and pierced his side, and there came out water and blood. That was what happened right there. And I think Satan the devil has guided men strangely. They talk about the blood of Christ, the blood of Christ, and yet they take out that part of verse 49, which is most significant. That's awful. 
Uh, if you want, you note takers want a little bit more on this, as I've read in a number of commentaries and elsewhere. The Codex Vaticanus, the Codex Ephraim, the Codex, Codex uh, Reginus, and uh, five other manuscripts add these words here. Adam Clark's commentary acknowledges that. Dr. James Tabor, professor of religion at the University of North Carolina, former student of mine who studied this in the Greek and so on, he says he's quite sure that's where that's what it ought to be too. Dr. Herman Hay is dead now, but he used to feel the same way, looked at it carefully and the background of it, how it got taken out, had been in the text and later got removed. Five different manuscripts have it beside the ones that I've read to you. And what is added after verse 49 again? They said, let us see if Elijah will come to save him. And another took a spear, pierced his side, and there came out water and blood. Perhaps urine, they pierced his bladder, and blood began to spurt out. The blood of the Lamb of God, because he was the Lamb of God. The blood had to be shed. They could say, well, the blood from the beating, but that didn't kill him. Everything would indicate this is what killed him because the very next verse, Jesus, when he cried with a loud voice, why did he suddenly cry with a loud voice? If you had a spear jammed in your side, you would cry with a loud voice involuntarily. Ah! And then he died. The blood spurted out. His head flopped forward. The blood surged down his legs, his ankles, his feet, ripped on the ground. And the Son of God was dead, who was our Savior. He died through the shedding of his blood. And behold, the veil of the temple right at that moment, a very sacred place, the Jews guarded it, let no man in there. The veil that separated the out of court from the Holy of Holies suddenly was ripped into a great big heavy, kind of a rug thing, ripped into supernaturally, from top to bottom, and the earth quaked. The creation convulsed at that moment. The earth quaked, and the rocks were split, and the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised, and coming out of the graves after his resurrection, God guided it where they weren't actually resurrected. The graves were opened, but they didn't have time over those Sabbaths to close up all those graves, so they stayed, and then God caused those people to come up. Some saints who had believed in Christ, were brought back as an additional testimony, no doubt, to Jesus' resurrection. And they came into the holy city, Jerusalem, and appeared to many. The Son of God died, the Creator died, and the earth convulsed. So Christ paid for your sins and my sins. And we need to really think about that as we approach the Passover. I am a sinner who's been forgiven. You are a sinner who's been forgiven if we have indeed repented. If we have really turned to God and given our life to God, then we've been forgiven. But we never want to lose sight of what it took to bring about that forgiveness. We never want to lose sight of what it took to get us back with God again so we could have God's spirit, so we could have God's help, so we could have God's guidance, God's mercy, God's protection in the years ahead. We all need to meditate on this, brethren. Turn with me, if you would now, back to, in, to verse uh, 
27, chapter 27, I mean it would. No, I'm sorry, back to chapter 26. Turn back to chapter 26 of Matthew. And here, before Jesus died, he was being tortured and beat up by these men and accused and so on. And in verse 69, if I may read all this in my Bible. (laughs) Now, Peter sat outside in the courtyard and a servant girl came saying, You also were with Jesus of Galilee. And he denied it, saying, I don't know what you're saying. And another came. And when he gone out, another girl came and said, This fellow also was with Jesus of Nazareth. But again he denied it with an oath, apparently cussed. I don't know the man. He yelled it out, he who had been so brave. God's Spirit was not in him yet. Boy, if we don't have God's Spirit, we're just sunk. We're just sunk. I'm sunk. Only through God's Spirit can we overcome, brethren. Only through God's Spirit can I overcome. I can't do it any other way. And after a while, those who stood by said, Surely you're one of them because your speech betrays you. You have this Kentucky accent. You grew up in the hills. That's what it was, kind of an Arkansas, Kentucky accent, you know, from the hills of Galilee. The Jerusalem, the the sophisticates down there looked down on the people from the North Carolina hills or the Kentucky or Missouri hills as it was in effect. And he began to curse and swear. He who had been with Jesus three years. He was scared. He tried to stop this, chop this soldier's ear off at first. Yes, he tried. And Jesus said, put up your sword. They that take the sword shall perish with the sword. He didn't pray that night before, remember. He couldn't fight. He was frustrated. He didn't know what to do because he wasn't fully converted. And so he began to curse and swear. Went back to his old ways. Saying, I don't know the man. And immediately the cock crowed, the rooster crowed, and Peter, all of a sudden, maybe their eyes met. Peter was over here, you know, maybe just 50, 100 yards away. We don't know that. But anyway, the indication is that could be. But Peter remembered the words of Jesus who'd said, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he did, denied Christ who loved him, taught him, worked with him, died for him. Three times he's so weak without God's Spirit. And he went out and wept bitterly. And Mark and other accounts, it says he wept, but Matthew says he wept bitterly. His shoulders shook and the tears streamed down his face. He thought, what a rat I have been. Here Christ comes and does all this. I've seen miracles. I've seen him walk on the water. He said, get down and walk. And he did. And then he got scared and began to sink. Lord, save me. And Jesus put out his hand and brought him back into the boat. All those experiences for three years. And he still turned aside, surrounded by soldiers. Brethren, we're all going to stand alone sometime. I am. They may grab me and put me down in some jail sometime because of preaching the truth or insulting some officials they will think I did or whatever. They may put some of the rest of us in jail. Some of you may be beaten up because you're a member of the church of God and you... You, you're, you're better than us. How can you be better than us? And they resent that bitterly. And they may hurt you. You'll be alone. I won't be there to help you. Mr. Bryce won't be. Mr. Ames won't be. You'll be alone. Just you and God. What are you going to do? You'll probably do the wrong thing unless Christ is in you. Let us all pray that we may say with Paul, I'm crucified with Christ. The old self really is buried. Nevertheless, I live, 
yet not I, but Christ lives in me. We've got to be sure that we have given ourselves to Christ, that we have really accepted his sacrifice, that he is our Savior, that he is our Lord and Master, our living head, our coming King, that he bought and paid for us, and we know that, and we live that. So when the time comes and we have real persecution or real personal trials, we're alone. But we're not alone because Christ is with us. God is with us. And even when he was about to die, he told Pilate, remember, don't you know that even now I can call down, what was it, 12 legions of angels? 12 legions of angels? God does not leave us alone. You know, if we're his servants, if we have given ourselves to God through Jesus Christ and have a profound feeling about that and have really done that, and Christ really is our Savior and our head. So let's carry out Matthew, I mean Galatians 2.20 in reality. That is the ultimate reality. Christ is our living Savior, our living head, our living high priest, our coming king. Let's have confidence in that and move forward.